Welcome in the latest episode of that SEC podcast. I'm your host, Michael Braddon. I go by SEC Mike on Twitter. And hey, flying solo for just a minute here. I was going to get right to our outstanding interview with Kelly Ford from K Ford Rankings. Went nearly an hour with Kelly. He's been on the show before. Great guest. Does a great job at KFordRatings.com. We cover all 14 SEC teams, even a little Texas and Oklahoma talk in this interview. But, like I said, I was just going to cut right to the interview, but we had some big news in the SEC on the recruiting front, of course, and that was with them dogs, back-to-back national championships. Now they may have secured another in their near future with the commitment of the number one overall prospect in the country, quarterback Dylan Riola, so obviously the number one quarterback too is going to be a dog and I mean it goes without saying this is a huge deal for Kirby Smart and company Mike Bobo landing another quarterback that uh, he obviously won't be on the roster this fall but he'll be the following season when who knows they could be going for the fourth <laughs> national championship in a row. that's crazy after not winning for 40 years now we're sitting here talking third and fourth titles in a row but A big deal for the Bulldogs for many reasons. I mean, obviously, anytime you land the number one recruit and the top quarterback prospect, big deal for your program. But you got to remember, Kirby Smart set his sights on Arch Manning last cycle, and they just missed him. I I believe Georgia was the runner-up to Texas. So had they missed on Dylan Riola, you know, it would not have been doom and gloom. Hell, they just won two national championships with a walk-on quarterback. But it would have been, I think, bad to miss on two of your top quarterbacks in successive cycles here. So now they've landed their guy and a guy that um, some believe is even better than Arch Manning. So it, Georgia won in the end yet again, if you believe those people. This is big for another reason. I mean, his dad and his uncle, Nebraska, legacies for a time there he was pegged to be the next uh, Nebraska quarterback the first quarterback for Matt Rule their new coach and his uncle's actually the offensive line coach so despite all that history and the connections to the Nebraska program Georgia beat out the corn people whatever they're called out there in Nebraska so probably is them being Nebraska was the key and not going for Dylan Riola but he's a former Ohio State commit was committed there under Ryan Day for a little while before reopening his commitment after Matt Rule was hired at Nebraska. But just a massive deal for Georgia as they try to assemble the number one recruiting class in the nation. And this will be the biggest domino to potentially put that together. I mean, it's they're no strangers. The number one class is there in Athens. And they may have taken a big step to doing just that yet again. And, you know, we, we never want to sit here and say, well, what if this guy doesn't pan out? But that does happen. I mean, the hit rate is, with these five stars, it's quarterbacks specifically, it's it's about 50%. Well, in case you didn't already know, they've already got a uh, top, depending on what service you, you look at, top 10, top 12 quarterback committed, four-star Ryan Pugsley, and he is apparently blocked into his commitment. So either way, Georgia's got two elite quarterbacks signing with the program this fall. And uh, I I just wanted to make this note. I thought this was pretty interesting. Credit on three who put out their 
uh, this graphic, and it says of the top 10 quarterback prospects in the country per their ratings right now, all 10 are now committed following Dylan Riola's commitment to Georgia. So Riola number one, Alabama's got number two, and Julian Sayan. So Georgia, Alabama, again, competing for this top billing here. Florida's DJ Lagway's number three. Michigan got a guy, Jaden Davis. C.J. Carr from Notre Dame. Air Nolan, Ohio State. And then Tennessee's on this list with quarterback commit Jake Merklinger. FSU got a guy. And then Auburn, Walker White. Beat out Clemson to, to land Walker White. And Pugsley, the guy I mentioned, he's number 10 according to on three. So the top 10 signal callers all committed six. Over half of them committed to SEC schools. And who knows, maybe some of these guys looking outside the SEC, they may just flip to the SEC before it's all said and done. Who knows? I'm just not making any predictions, but would not surprise me in the least. But all right, let's get to this outstanding interview with my guy, Kelly Ford. I think you guys are really going to appreciate it. He does his homework. He's entertaining with all these numbers he's going to throw at you. If you're watching on YouTube, I'll throw up all the charts and graphs and everything he's put together to make this an even better viewing experience. But you guys are really going to like all this data that old Kelly's got for us on the SEC's upcoming season. All right, we're pleased to uh, once again be joined by the man himself, Kelly Ford. You know him online, K Ford Ratings. He's been on the show before. I've been on his show, uh, We Hate Your Team Podcast. I don't think I'm welcome back after my appearance. Give uh, Check out his website, kfordratings.com. He works for the Horizon League, and I also know he is an NCAA tournament junkie. Man, Kelly, I, that board you have for March Madness, I mean, that's that's elite stuff right there. No, Mike, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, it's always fun being with you. And you are always welcome on the We Hate Your Team <laughs> podcast. Please don't get that twisted at all. Uh, but yeah, the March Madness board started. So in March of 2021, when Indianapolis hosted the entire men's tournament or Central Indiana hosted the entire men's tournament, we had up on the JW Marriott, a big downtown hotel property, a massive bracket, and they filled it out as the tournament went. And I looked at that and said, that's really cool. I want to do something on a much smaller scale, of course, uh, but I want to do something like that moving forward. So since that tournament down in our basement, we have a magnetic chalkboard wall. So I filled that thing up with a bracket and it's been a lot of fun to follow along with the tournament that way. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I just love your content, Kelly, because obviously it's it's insightful. It's, there's there's thought put into it, but also it's clear you're just passionate about this stuff. And that's that's all I am. So uh, it's great to have someone on like yourself. But uh, before we get rolling here, you've already started with your 2023 college football previews and things of that nature. I, I know you're still hard at work putting that all together. Uh, but before we get into some of these SEC numbers, Kelly, could you give us a brief uh, overview for maybe some of the audience that's not familiar with your outstanding work just uh, what goes into it and, and what exactly is the k ford ratings yeah for sure so uh the k ford rating started a handful of years ago now um i really emulated bill Connolly and brian from so sp plus and fei uh learned as much about those guys and their work as i could and then set out to kind of make my own power ratings and that's what the k ford ratings are so in the preseason there are three main inputs and that is your returning production 
It's your recent recruiting and it's your recent team performance, your recent K Ford ratings from, from these most recent seasons. Once we get going in the season, that portion, the preseason um, segment gets devalued, deweighted, and it gets replaced with in-season data, of course. But that's what my preseason numbers are reflecting are those three main um, main inputs. And then from my power ratings, I'm also able to generate resume rankings during the season. Basically, how much have you accomplished versus your schedule relative to what would be expected of the average top 25 team to accomplish versus that same schedule. So it's been really fun to be putting it out there on Twitter and getting connected with folks like you, Mike. But that, in a nutshell, is what the power ratings and resume rankings are all about. And how big of a wrench, I don't know if that's the right term, but uh, with the transfer portal, like here's just an example that comes to mind. Devin Leary and Ray Davis uh, from NC State and Vanderbilt, respectively, now at Kentucky. How does that factor into your models, what it says about Kentucky, given that they had high production, but it was at a different school? I mean, how how big of a variable is that for your model? It's a huge variable, Mike, and it's definitely with the increased usage of the transfer portal in recent years, with the one-time free transfer playing into that, and then also the extra, the COVID year, the extra year of eligibility that student-athletes are still taking advantage of and will be for the next couple of years, all of that has made calculating return and pr- returning production significantly more uh, time-consuming. Not not difficult. The, the calculations and the process is still the same, but just figuring out where are all of these student-athletes landing when they come out the other side of the portal um, it has been has been time-consuming for sure and is why the numbers are not yet final because I'm still going through that process. That's why they're, they're still changing slightly. Um, but in terms of trying to account for production as student athletes are transferring, you know, up a level, down a level within power five, you throw in the group of five, you throw in FCS transfers. I have um, scalers and multipliers that I have used and refined over the years to, to try to capture what is production at Kentucky versus production at Alabama versus production at Miami of Ohio versus production at an FCS school. So um, all of that is taken into account. It's not perfect by any means. My model cannot capture every out there, no model can, um, but it gives us a kind of a starting point on how to evaluate teams and their schedules um, and what we might come to expect in the in the coming football season. Let me ask you this because I was not prepared to ask you this, but I I've been on record. I think because um, you hit on something there, the COVID year, the free season of eligibility. Um, I think they should just go to that standard now, and reason being because hardly anybody can recruit at the level of Georgia, Alabama, LSU. But we have seen in this brief window of time that the COVID year could help uh, an Arkansas, a South Carolina, a Tennessee, perhaps close that gap due to experience and and having a lot of experience against maybe a more talented Alabama. Of course, I I realize that's maybe silly to say because Georgia's just two-time national champion here. But I think that can help elevate teams that just do not recruit at that elite level. What What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a fair hypothesis, Mike. And it's complicated, right? I You, you mentioned I work at the Horizon League. It's a Division I um, conference office in Indianapolis. So I work in college athletics as an administrator, have for over five years now. It gets complicated when you talk about a permanent fifth year of eligibility for all student athletes, because are we just talking football now? Are we just talking FBS football or is it permeating into all of the other sports as well? So it's a part of a larger conversation. Of course, then how does that impact the member institutions? How does that impact the conferences? How does it impact the NCAA? But I think your point of having an additional year 
of course, I would agree, is going to make it more likely for teams that are not losing players after three years to the NFL to compete and compete for a sustained period of time at a high level because you've got an extra year with them in your system, developing in your weight room, all of that stuff. So I do think there's merit to that. And as you said, the Alabamas, the Georgias, those programs that are used to having players leave after three years, they're still going to leave after three years. It's not going to impact them. They'll still end up with some five-year guys too, um, but it would definitely benefit the uh, the, the the lesser heavyweights, if you will, um, across college football. Now, one thing I really appreciate about uh, the work you do, Kelly, you, you, it's a unique view in particularly the schedules that you're looking at. Now, I wanted to ask you that first of all. Um, by your metrics here, I believe 11 of the toughest 14 schedules in a, the country come from the SEC. But you're not just simply saying, okay, this team's got a tough schedule, that team's got a tough schedule. As I understand it, you're you're essentially saying, let's let's go Florida. You got them as the toughest schedule, but the way you do it is the average team, if they were to face Florida's schedule, could they get to six wins? Could you explain that a little bit and, and, and why it's just uh, it's a dang meat grinder in the SEC? Yeah, the, the SEC is incredibly difficult, Mike. And as, as you alluded to there, one of the things I'm able to do with my power ratings, and again, they are still preliminary. They are not finalized yet. They won't be finalized yet um, until mid-August. I'll probably do another pretty significant update here in the coming weeks, and then we'll get those finalized in August. But they're not going to change too drastically. So what I'm able to do with those numbers is evaluate every single FBS team's schedule, and we can say, how difficult would it be for the average top 25 team to win six games, eight games, 10 games, or go undefeated against that schedule. And so by making that common denominator of making it all relative to the average top 25 team, we can get a good comparison of who actually has the most difficult schedule to achieve those various benchmarks. And as you mentioned, based on my early numbers and looking at it, um, objectively from Florida's point of view, they have the most difficult schedule at each of those thresholds. There is less than a 0.1% chance that the average top 25 team would go undefeated against Florida's regular season schedule. We're talking about the average top 25 team. That's a really good team. And there's less than a 0.1% chance that they'd be able to go undefeated. If we look at just bowl eligibility. So the average chance that the, uh, the chance that the average top 25 team would go six and six or better against Florida schedule. There's a 92% chance of that, which is the lowest in the country of any other of any FBS team. So that means there's an 8% chance that a really, really good team an average top 25 team would fail to reach bowl eligibility against Florida schedule. Just really, really difficult. And that's a function of playing in the SEC. It really doesn't matter whether it's East, whether it's West. Of course, the the West um, has been um, more competitive top to bottom. Georgia's obviously won the national championship the last two years. But top to bottom, the West has been more competitive. But even playing in the East, um, when you're playing in the SEC, that's where the best college football is played on aggregate in the country. And it's been that way for going on two decades now. And a second on your list is South Carolina. So I would assume that as a function of Florida playing at Utah, Florida State, and then the SEC, and South Carolina playing North Carolina, Clemson, and the SEC. So, I mean, these ADs are not doing their coaches any favors, are they, at, in Gainesville or Columbia, South Carolina? 
No, it's it's going to be difficult, that's for sure. Um, but that's those are the matchups the fans want to see. And and I, for one, I mean, you mentioned Florida, Utah. That's just an absolutely great non-conference game. Really excited about that. Urban Meyer Bowl, I guess. But outside of that, it's not really a rivalry. Those ones you mentioned for South Carolina, though, uh, Clemson, North Carolina, those are rivalry games. I want to see as many rivalry games as we can in conference, at a conference. To me, the rivalries, the upsets, that's the absolute best parts of college football. So you're right, not doing them any favors, but they're giving the fans what they want to see. And and it's a really good opportunity for these teams to go out and get really high quality and high profile wins. You win these games, you're positioning yourself really, really well down the stretch to be in a place that you want to be in the postseason. And what's interesting, Kelly, you got Alabama, number three, most difficult schedule. But of course, again, you, your model's based on average top 25 team. And even the biggest Alabama hater is not going to sit here and say, well, they got a pretty average roster. I mean, they got at worst, at absolute worst, maybe the fourth best roster in the country and and probably a top two roster in the country so you're not sitting here saying Alabama's going to go six and six by any means but uh, they, they do have a tough schedule A&M's fourth Auburn's fifth good luck Hugh Ole Miss six Mizzou seven LSU eight Vandy 11 Mississippi State 12 Kentucky 13 and your most hated team, the Arkansas Razorbacks, 14. I'm wearing my Arkansas uh, shirt just for you, Kelly, because I don't want us to lose this great Razorback fans that you hate, uh, or at least your model does. I, I shouldn't say you. I should say your model hates the Razorbacks, right? I have nothing against Arkansas. Yes, Mike, you're correct. And you're listing off the ranks there, um, the, the difficulty to go against the 6-6 six and six record. Um, it, they're slightly different as you change the threshold, but uh, generally they're in the same ballpark, of course. And yes, it's the model um, that maybe is not as high on Arkansas as others or as I would like them to be because, quite frankly, Mike, I really like Arkansas. I think Sam Pittman is a great cultural fit for Arkansas. I think he can do great things there, things that maybe others would not have the ability to do, just given his personality, given his approach, given his philosophy. Um, I will say, for the record, I know we've gone back and forth on this, last year I projected 6.4 wins in the regular season for Arkansas. They ended up getting six. So mm -hmm. I actually was higher on Arkansas than they ended up performing. Um, it was really close, of course, but – there's nothing personal. Love you, Arkansas. Woo pig, suey, all that stuff. Um, but again, you're in the SEC West. That's a really tough uh, division to be playing in. Mike, they've got a gauntlet. I mean, I know we're not diving into them or anything, but they have a gauntlet. Weeks four to seven, you're at LSU, you're neutral to Texas A&M, you're at Ole Miss, you're at Alabama. That is, I mean, that's the toughest four-game stretch in the entire country, and it's not close. Um, that is absolutely brutal. If you're an Arkansas fan, you got to be hoping to go two and two there, I would think, and, and you'd be happy with that. Right, and I believe they've only got two home conference games before like the beginning of November, which is insane. Um, we've we got to fix this XCC scheduling. But you know, one one team I didn't reference there, Kelly, in your toughest schedules to to get to six uh, is Georgia, of course. I mean, the the best team, number one preseason by every poll metric is, is likely going to have Georgia as, a, as an elite national championship contender, yet they're not even listed here. Uh, that's just another reason that uh, we need to fix the schedules in the SEC, don't you think? To Again, I'm not trying to break Kirby Smart in Georgia or anything, but it is kind of weird that Alabama's playing this gauntlet and, and Georgia seemingly has only got one team they're facing that I, I believe is projected to win seven or more games. 
Yeah. Um, so the Georgia schedule is interesting and it needs to be the context needs to be remembered here. So, of course, Georgia did have a non-conference game against Oklahoma scheduled, which was canceled with the news of Oklahoma and Texas coming to to the SEC uh, next season. So it's not that they didn't try to get that game, but the reality is they don't have it. So with that kind of side or footnote aside, you look at their schedule. The reason that Georgia's grades out as easier than the other SEC teams, specifically the other SEC East teams, is because Georgia doesn't have to play this one team in the SEC East that's really, really good, and that is Georgia. All the other <laughs> SEC East teams have the the benefit, in this case, if you will, I say that with quotes, of playing Georgia to beef up their schedule. Georgia can't play itself um, on a game day, and so they don't have that opportunity. You then look at their non-conference schedule. I, to- I talked about how much I love rivalries, and I'm not suggesting at all that you get rid of Georgia-Georgia Tech. I think it's a great way to end the regular season. I love it. But Georgia Tech's not doing a whole lot for Georgia's you know, strength of schedule at this point in time. And then there are other non-conference games, UT Martin, Ball State, UAB. None of those teams projecting to be very good um, relative to at least a Power 5 schedule or standpoint. So that's how you get um, what you get with, with the Georgia schedule. And again, they are playing in the SC East with the full round robin on that side, which is weaker on aggregate than the West. Um, catching Auburn and Ole Miss out of the West. Um, Tennessee is the only game currently... Uh, in Knoxville that I have Georgia as less than a two touchdown favorite in my numbers currently like uh, Georgia in that game by about eight. Hmm. Well, I think Georgia fans also like playing tech to end the regular season because it's always good <laughs> to get a bye right before the SEC championship game. But uh, let, let's break down your model. Uh, it's got SEC projected wins. And I got a quick question for you, Kelly, because I, I know some people I get this question a lot. Uh, Let's just go with Georgia off the top, for example, 11.1 projected wins. How does a model come with with a decimal point? Can you explain that for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So my my model is projecting Georgia's overall record to be 11.1 and 0.9 losses. Uh, In conference, 7.2 wins and 0.8 losses. So how we get to decimal points and tenths of wins and losses is by multiplying the individual game win probabilities together. So I just mentioned Georgia, for example, They are an eight-point favorite at Tennessee, and they are greater than a two-touchdown favorite in every other game on their regular season schedule. So in any individual game, my numbers are giving Georgia, at a minimum, a 72% chance to win, and in most cases, greater than an 85% chance to win every single game on their schedule. However, when we multiply together those 12 individual probabilities, you get a number that is smaller and smaller each time. Because anytime you multiply by anything less than 100% or one, you're gonna the result is going to be a, a lower number. So that's how Georgia gets to 11.1 projected wins. There's not a single game on the schedule that I am saying that's the game that Georgia, that, my, that I think or my numbers think Georgia is going to, to lose. But overall, on the aggregate, the numbers suggest there is one game this year where Georgia will stub their toe. I'm not going to bet on that, and I wouldn't advise anybody else to do it either for a Georgia money line upset. Um, but that's what the number suggests. That's how we get there. Georgia's 11.1 projected wins is the greatest of any team in FBS football this year. Um, Alabama, Ohio State, everybody else fewer than 11.1. So Georgia... Uh, Bulldog fans should be feeling very good about the team this year, their chances to make it to Atlanta, their chances to make the CFP, and their chances to be the first three-peat national champions that we've had in a very, very long time. Right. And and so second on your list here, Kelly, Alabama 10.4, not not very far behind. Uh, Do you think that is uh, is that a function of of playing that West schedule, of playing Texas, even though that is at home? 
it kind of creates that little dip separation between Georgia and Alabama, according to your model? Yeah, definitely. It, it would be at playing in the West versus playing in the East. And then, like like you just mentioned, the, the non-conference game against Texas is much more difficult than anything Georgia has in the non-conference. My numbers, though, still, like Georgia, they like Alabama by uh, at least eight points in every game. My numbers right now are projecting the closest Alabama game is at home against LSU in a game that you got to think Alabama is going to be ready for after last year. Currently like to tie by about eight points. Uh, they like to tie by about nine at home against Texas in week two. Every other game, as I look down their schedule really quickly, looks like the next closest is 11 and a half at Texas A&M. Um, so again, that's how we get to the 10.4 projected wins for Alabama, 6.7 in conference. There's a My numbers, though, 50-50 chance exactly that Alabama wins 11 or more regular season games um, this year. So this is an Alabama team that I know they haven't reached their their team and program goals in recent years and what makes it worse is is the team in Athens uh Georgia is 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 lifting that trophy but they are still very much poised to to make to make a run at this and my numbers would suggest they're going to be the favorites in the west uh and and to make it to Atlanta and next you got LSU 9.4 projected wins and I've heard you say this Kelly but uh but man, it was not just you I mean it was everybody everybody kind of missed on LSU last year and no one saw that coming but um how does that factor in for your following here that, uh, you know, do you overcorrect or, or how do you respond to a, a LSU Brian Kelly program that, that overachieves year one? And, and how does that affect year two? Absolutely. Yes. Um, last year projecting just over seven wins or just under seven win, regular season wins for LSU. Of course, they went out and got nine. So that 2.2 wins over expected for me ranked 19th nationally last year out of 131 teams. So Brian Kelly did a phenomenal job um, in year one. My numbers have corrected. Of course, as you mentioned, how do you, how do you walk that fine line between a correction and an overcorrection? Because we certainly don't want to, uh, whether a team overachieves like LSU or a team underachieves, maybe like Texas A&M or Miami last year, two good examples of underachievers. You don't want to overcorrect and swing the pendulum too far the other way. So absolutely, that's something that I'm constantly looking at and being mindful of. But my numbers, man, they're expecting a lot out of LSU this year, currently projecting as a top five power rated team. This offense is in the top 10 in the country, defense in the top 15. Um, LSU is going to be really, really strong. Their season um, starting against Florida State uh, at a neutral site last year was in uh, New Orleans, I believe. I think this year it's in Orlando. So LSU's backyard this last year, uh, Florida State's backyard this year, currently like the Tigers by about five and a half in that game. Um, but that's going to be one that if they can get that win, it'll set them off and, and and they'll be rolling. If they lose that one, they'll have to bounce back and and, and try to um, recover like they did last year. But uh, this is this is a really, really good LSU team. I'm excited to see what Brian Kelly is able to do this year. A 50-50 chance. So like, like Alabama, 50-50 to win 11 for the Tide, 50-50 to win 10 plus for LSU by my numbers. Um, other than the game at Alabama, where I mentioned they're an eight, currently an eight-point underdog by my numbers, LSU's favorite in every other game, the second most difficult on the schedule, looking like um, maybe a tie between that neutral side against Florida State. And then also in week five, they go to Ole Miss, where my numbers currently make the Tigers a five and a half point favorite. And you got Cousin Shane smiling, Kelly, because you got Tennessee with a projected 8.8 win, so closer to nine than eight. Uh, a lot of faith, I would imagine, in, in the Josh Heupel to to reload a lot of uh, offensive production off to the NFL, but uh, your model clearly thinks Tennessee can can sustain success. 
Yeah, cousin Shane should be smiling. He should be happy about this one. Um, just like LSU overachieved last year, Tennessee did as well. Actually, slightly more. Um, 2.3 more wins than I expected last year in the regular season from Tennessee. So I definitely think Josh Heupel, I mean, he had that team humming. They finished the year last year power rated number four for me in the entire country. Who knows if Hooker doesn't get hurt at the end of the year, um, how everything shakes out with the CFP and, and all of that. Um, we'll never know. But it was a really good Tennessee team last year. I don't think they're going to be quite as good this year, but they're still going to be an incredibly talented team. Top 10 coming into this year. Second best offense right now, currently projected um, in the entire country. Defense projected as a top 35 unit. So uh, Tennessee is definitely a team to be reckoned with. They do have a tough schedule, though. Um, any Tennessee every year has a tough schedule. When you get Alabama and Georgia every single year, that's brutal. Um, they split it last year. If they can split it again this year, I'm sure volunteer fans would be thrilled, or at least I would suggest they should be um, 12 point dogs at Alabama, eight point dogs at home to Georgia. But outside of that, um, they're going to be favored by at least a field goal in every other game by my numbers, a 60% chance to win nine plus games in the regular season this year. So not sure they can match last year's regular season win total. Uh, well, they can. I'm not sure that they will, uh, but this is still a really, really good team. Um, and I'm excited about Tennessee. The arrows pointed straight up for that program in Knoxville. Now, next several teams, they're kind of glutted together. I mean, there's a little bit of a, a step down uh, according to your model, and you got Ole Miss, seven and a half projected wins. How difficult is it to project Lane Kiffin? I, I seem to have his program wrong every season due to, you know, transfers and whatnot, and he's such an exceptional play caller. Now they brought in Pete Golding. Uh, what is it do you think about your model that, that kind of has Ole Miss above this like I'm saying, several teams here kind of grouped together, but at that top is the Ole Miss Rebels. Yeah, it, it, it's tough, like you said, and 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 you're you're splitting hairs, the razor thin margins as you get you know beyond the top two, three teams in the SEC, maybe four. Um, but Ole Miss, just on the whole, uh, offense projected to be really, really good. You know, top top fifteen, top twenty unit. The defense is going to be um, solid, top forty unit. Which if they can get production out of that defense, the offense and Lane Kiffin's play calling, as you just said there, Mike, certainly can take this team far. Uh, the challenge for Ole Miss, just like the challenge for a lot of teams in the SEC, is playing in that SEC. I, I hate to keep harping on it, but it's a huge factor for all of these teams. And and when you're projecting win totals, again, I'm projecting 7.5 on average, a 50-50 chance that, that Ole Miss will win 8-plus. Um, if, if you picked up this team, and you could say this about a lot of SEC teams, if you picked up this team and dropped them in the ACC or you dropped them in the Pac-12, that projected wins from 7.5 could – easily go up to 10.5, right? It's just the, the the quality and depth of teams in the SEC, particularly in the West, is incredibly difficult. Um, but Ole Miss, they, they currently have them as un, projecting as underdogs in three games this year, probably no surprise, all the teams we've already talked about, at Alabama, home to LSU, and at Georgia. Um, it's it's going to be very difficult pulling Georgia out of the East. Uh, never never great um, for, for West programs, but this is still a really good team, and I'm excited to see what they can do. One of the most difficult schedules in the entire country, though, ranking in the top six, um, regardless of threshold, whether that's to go six and six all the way up to undefeated, actually the second most difficult schedule in the entire country against which for the average top 25 team to go undefeated um, under a 0.1% chance to, to go undefeated, just like uh, that average top 25 team against Florida. Now it looks like your model, Kelly, is just like the rest of us falling into this Texas A&M trap. We do it every offseason. Why does the model like A&M 7.4? So, I mean, like you said, splitting hairs between Ole Miss, but 
Is it loaded with talent? You know, bringing in Bobby Petrino, we looks like we finally got the quarterback situation resolved here. Uh, is this a year Jimbo finally puts it all together in a in a non-COVID season? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'm ready to go that far just yet, Mike. And, and for the record, I, I remember we talked about this last year, too, and I took a lot of heat for it, um, not on your show, but from fans and on Twitter. I had projected last year 8.1 wins for Texas A&M. Remember, this is a top five, top 10 team in the preseason by all the polls, and I'm sitting here saying they're going to go eight and four. People killed me for that, saying there is no way this A&M team's not going to win more than eight games. That's ridiculous. This, that, the other thing. Well, by the end of the year, AM fans would have been thrilled with eight wins. Of course, they only get five. That minus 3.1 wins relative to expected ranked 124th out of 131 teams last year. So massive underachievers. Um, my numbers didn't have to adjust too much because I didn't expect AM to be that quality of a team. Like, I mean, they're a really good team, but their record to not reflect that of a top five, top 10 team. Um, so coming into this year with 7.4, currently power rated within the top 20. Yes, there's a ton of talent on this roster. Their weighted four-year uh, recruiting rankings that I that I incorporate into my preseason numbers currently ranks number four in the entire country behind only Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State. Those are the only three programs over the last four years that have recruited at a higher level than Texas A&M. Um, this defense is very strong. Top five unit nationally is how it's projecting. It's the offense. That's going to be the question. Currently projecting in the mid-50s, how much will Petrino be able to do with this offense? How much will Jimbo Fisher let him do with this offense? Um, that will tell the story. And, of course, the schedule is incredibly difficult, ranking in the top five or six and against all those thresholds as well. Um, but if you look at the schedule, I'm seeing one, two, three, four games right now currently that AM is projecting as an underdog in. You'd be happy if you get one of those, right? But now that's already three losses straight on the schedule. Home to Alabama, at Tennessee, at Ole Miss, and at LSU currently projecting as underdogs in all of those games. So it's going to be very difficult, uh, but the talent in, in College Station is undeniable. It's can that offense have a pulse, really? Can they get going? This is the opposite of Iowa. Iowa's, or sorry, this is the same as Iowa. They've got this phenomenal defense, and if the the offense can just show a pulse, then they're going to be really successful and, 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 and do great things. Now, Iowa, they need a smaller pulse because they're playing in the Big Ten West and not the SEC West like Texas A&M. But, um, yes, great defense. Question marks on offense. Uh, still projecting to be a top 20 team, though, which um, you'd expect with this talent roster. That's exactly what the Ags thought they were getting when they gave Jimbo $100 million, the Iowa of the SEC. My God. Okay. Oh, that, that's going to that's gonna be clipped and quoted, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, boy. All right. This is my dark horse, I think, of the entire SEC, Kelly. Kentucky, 7.1 projected. Uh, how difficult is it, though, to project them given that uh, last year was a train wreck on offense? Uh, two years ago was a train wreck on offense, but the one year they had Liam Cohen and they had Will Levis playing at a high level. I mean, they won 10 games. Uh, can they get back to that? And, and maybe not quite to that level, but they've got one of the best defensive coordinators. They've got probably the most underrated defensive talent, in my mind, in the SEC. And if we hit on these transfers, if Liam Cohen recaptures that magic – it's just a damn shame for Kentucky. They catch Alabama this year. That may not kill them, but it could uh, for, for their hopes to potentially win the East. But uh, uh, what's your thoughts on Kentucky? Yeah, Kentucky is a great defense. Um, I think they are underrated. I have them as the second best defensive unit in the SEC East behind only Georgia. This is a top 10 defensive unit in the country. So much like AM, the questions, as you said, Mike, are on the offensive side of the ball. I've got Kentucky power rated currently number 23, so a top 25 team. But when you're playing in the SEC, being 25th or 23rd is below average, it feels like, in your own conference or right around average. So it makes it very difficult. But the schedule – 
while it's very difficult overall, it sets up very nicely for Kentucky at the start of the year. Um, you know, Ball State, Eastern Kentucky, Akron, Vanderbilt could very likely be 4-0 before hosting Florida in what's going to be a pivotal swing game. If you can get that game against Florida, right now my, my numbers have this as a pick Um, And I've learned that my numbers are a little bit higher on Florida than basically anybody else out there, it seems like. So um, I'm sure the Vegas line might actually favor Kentucky in that game by a little bit. Um, my numbers lean Kentucky, but not enough to put any points on it. So it's still a pick em for me. Um, but once you get past that, of course, you have to go to Georgia. Then you get Missouri at home, which could be could be a nice opportunity to pick up a win potentially. So if you're if you're Kentucky, you could be six and one coming off your bye, getting ready to host Tennessee. And I hope you're close to that record because after that, it's very difficult. Tennessee at home at Mississippi State um, versus Alabama at South Carolina at Louisville, who maybe is a sleeper team in the ACC. That's not a very difficult schedule. Louisville only plays three true road games all year, fewest in all of FBS. Um, so it gets difficult at the end of the year for Kentucky. They need to bank those wins early. Uh, my numbers, you said, you know, 10 wins is where they've been. And can they get there? Currently a 3% chance to get 10 plus wins. So I'm not liking the chances of that, but a 66% chance. Uh, um, to get seven plus. So a two and three chance for Kentucky to get seven plus wins this year. That's how you get the 7.1 uh, projected wins. And in conference, 3.6 wins. So expecting them to be, you know, right around 500 in SEC play, just given the nature of the schedule. But if they can win those toss up games, uh, Kentucky absolutely could surprise the people with a great win loss record this year. Well, let me just to be clear, Kelly, when you say 10 wins, you're saying just regular season, though, right? Correct. All of my calculations, good clarification, all of my calculations at this point are based on the regular season slate, which for all teams except for two, we actually have two teams this year playing 13 regular season. That's Hawaii, as they usually do, and New Mm -hmm. Mexico State. They are on a 13-game schedule, everybody else on 12. So when I'm talking about reaching a certain win threshold, I'm talking strictly um, regular season. So, yes, I should have clarified that. Okay, because I think both years Kentucky won 10. They won the bowl game. Got so, it. So I just wanted to make that clear. Mississippi State, 6.8. Again, all these are very, very, very close. How difficult is it to project a new head coach who's never been a head coach outside of a bowl game? And he's standing firm that we're not blowing up the offense, but there's only one Mike Leach, and we're going to Kevin Barbet, who's been wildly successful. So I'm not saying he's going to be a disaster, but there's an adjustment period, and they got a first-year defensive coordinator, an offensive coordinator that's never called a play at the Power 5 level, and, and I just – reference the head coach I mean there's a lot of unknowns with Mississippi State doesn't mean they're going to be bad but there could be a learning curve what's your thoughts on Mississippi State your models got them at at 6.8 wins yeah, Miss, all the things you said, Mike, I absolutely agree with. Um, and of course, it's very difficult to replace a legend and and, and uh, such an innovator in college football like Mike Leach was. Um, we will miss him, of course. This is a very balanced Mississippi State team by my numbers. You know, they're power rated inside the top 30, the offense and defense, both top 30 units. Um, so I, I think the balance of this team is very important. Their non-conference schedule, not overly difficult. They're drawing Kentucky and South Carolina out of the East, which Again, we've talked about top to bottom. The SEC is incredibly difficult, but if you're going to draw two teams out of the East, you know, minus Vanderbilt, those are two that maybe you wouldn't mind seeing on your schedule so much, um, if you're being honest. So it's a it's a difficult schedule, but it's not as hard as maybe some of the others in the SEC. So it does give a little bit of hope, I think, to Mississippi State. Um, 59% chance to win seven-plus games. Um, a lot of these games are projecting within a field goal. I mean, if I go down their schedule, here are all the games projecting currently within plus or minus a field goal. At South Carolina, at Arkansas, at Auburn, home to Kentucky, home to Ole Miss. That's five games out of a 12-game slate that are really toss-up games. That's not even counting, you know, Texas A&M, which is currently under a touchdown line. Um, so 
again, kind of like I talked about with Kentucky, that's why it's so difficult, Mike, as you've alluded to a couple of times, to split these hairs between these teams. And, and that's why the numbers, when they when you aggregate them and average them all out, they end up so close because so many of these teams have multiple games on their schedule, half their schedule that is projecting as toss-up games. And you never in football, you especially college football, you never know how these toss-up games are gonna go. You can go six and oh in those toss-up games, or you can go oh and six in what we call the Scott Frost special and lose all of those close <laughs> games. And so that can define that can define your season. That can define a, co- a head coach's um t- tenure at a at an at an institution. So there's so much that goes into those close games. Models can't account for all of that. At the end of the day, it's an oblong ball. It takes a, a, a good bounce this week, a bad bounce next week, and um you just hope that it evens out over the course of the season um but that's why it's so difficult to split these hairs and that's why we love sec football kelly because you just never know and, and home field is a massive advantage um uh, but I, I digress so arkansas 6.8 this according to your model even better than last year and and i wanted to ask you real quick did, um you know does your model rate like quarterbacks and things of that nature i'm, I'm just curious what it says about kj jefferson because uh based on your answer i may hang up this call <laughs> well, I'll tread very lightly here. Um, to, to, to answer it bluntly, no, I don't have like an ordinal rank of quarterbacks within college football or within a certain conference. However, of the, the quarterback play that you have or that you've recruited to is certainly captured in your returning production, in your recruiting rankings, and it's weighted accordingly because we know that quarterback is not just the most important position in all of football, it's the most important position in all of team sports. And so when you have a good quarterback, your team is going to, your offense in particular, but your team overall is going to have a better projection than all else equal if you have a bad quarterback. And of course that makes sense, but it's it's worth saying because this position does so much in, in college football and in football in general to answer your question, which again, I, I hope I'm going the right way here. I think KJ Jefferson is a very good quarterback. I think he he brings things to the table. Um, that and okay, I got the fist bump. I'm on I'm on the same page. Right on. I think he's a very good quarterback. I think he's probably an underrated quarterback. And um, somebody tweeted recently. I can't remember who it was, but somebody said if at, it might have been you actually, Mike. I don't. If at this point you don't think KJ quarterback's a good KJ Jefferson's a good quarterback, you will never think he is. And and I agree with that. Like he's done enough. He's proven enough. You've seen it that he is a good quarterback. Does he make mistakes? Sure. 99.9% of college quarterbacks make mistakes on a very frequent basis. He makes them at a lesser rate, I would say, than most quarterbacks out there. So I think Cage Jefferson is a really good quarterback. I think he gives Arkansas a chance in a lot of these toss-up games that we've been talking about here. This Arkansas team, though, is... I don't want to say they're going to be defined by the four-game stretch from weeks four to seven, because they're not. But it is possible i won't say it's likely but it's possible they can go zero and four in these games my numbers currently have them as an underdog in each of them of at least four points so it's more likely that they'd go zero and four than four and oh of course um probably somewhere in between i think if you can get two and two you can feel really good about that the most likely outcome here is probably one and three if i had to guess and that's not to say they can't go three and one for example but that's a really tough stretch you come out of that of course you get mississippi state at home which is going to be a difficult game then you get your bye you can catch your breath you finish the year at Florida, which is not going to be easy, and then three games at home that you're going to hope you can get uh, Auburn, Florida International, and Missouri. But, geez, weeks four to seven, I did, I can't get over that. New this year on my graphics, Mike, as, as you've seen them, are I've color-coded the home neutral in a way. So home's just plain white, neutral's like kind of a darker gray, and then your road games are in black. Because I really wanted to draw my, but also any viewer's attention to those road games because there's nothing more difficult in college football, in my opinion, than winning on the road. 
And so when you see that much black and that much gray all together in a clump, that's some scheduling dynamics and that's things that are going to impact this team that my model does not necessarily pick up and see. So um, again, back to the model can't capture everything comment. It can't capture this. And that's just really, really difficult, but the offense is going to be good. Top 15, the defense right now I'm projecting kind of be in that mid 60 range. So FBS, FBS average, which is, you know, below power five average. So I'd like to see him improve on the defensive side of the ball. Um, but that offense with KJ Jefferson, I, I think they'll be all right there. Now, Florida, you got at 6.8 also. Uh, I mean, that's that's one of the biggest storylines, in my opinion, Kelly, in the entire SEC. Billy Napier, year two. How big of a jump do they make after losing the number four overall prospect in the draft? Five other NFL draft picks. Uh, had they beat Vanderbilt? Had they beat Florida State? We're not having these conversations. We're saying, man, Billy Napier is is doing it right. But that's not how it happened. And they got blown out in the bowl game, even though they, they probably didn't care about it. But uh, what's your thoughts on Florida and, and the direction they're headed in year two? Well, I think I mentioned it earlier, Mike. My numbers um, seem to be higher on Florida than really any of the others that I've seen out there. And granted, there aren't, there aren't a ton out there just yet for public consumption. But we'll get more of those here. And, and it'll be good for me to be able to benchmark uh, my numbers against what other people are saying, too, um, or th- their, what their numbers suggest. But I'm I'm a little bit more optimistic about Florida this year. I, I know they lost Anthony Richardson to, to my Indianapolis Colts. I mentioned I live in Indy, so I'm very excited. Ho- hopefully he can uh, he can he can bring some of that magic that he displayed at times at Florida with him uh, to the Colts and to the NFL. So we'll see how that goes. But for Florida in particular, um, it, it's a really it's a difficult schedule. It's the most difficult schedule in the country as we talked about against any of those thresholds. We, we've already talked a little bit about it, you know at Florida Florida State to end the year phenomenal rivalry game, but that's going to be a really difficult one even though it's in the swamp. Um, um, you've always got Georgia. The neutral side is going to be really difficult. Um, and then out of the SEC West, you've got at LSU, which other than Alabama, that's you know the toughest one you can you can pull. Um, with the other one being home to Arkansas, as we just talked about the Arkansas team a little bit too. So Florida, though, they lost a lot of production, as you talked about there, and, and as we alluded to with you know of course Anthony Richardson being first and foremost there, but other playmakers as well. This is a team, though, that's recruited by my numbers at a top 15 level over the last four years. Their pay forward ratings over the last four years currently comes in at number 17. So, again, top 20 there. When you are performing that well in those metrics, which make up a a decent amount of the the preseason weights in my preseason ratings, you're going to be projected to be a a pretty darn good team. So I currently have Florida as a top 20 team. The offense is top 25. The defense is you know, top 40-ish. Um, so I think we need to see something from that defense. I think Bill and Napier was a great hire for Florida. I know last year didn't necessarily go the way that Gator fans wanted. Uh, I projected 6.9 wins. They ended up getting six. Uh, this year I'm projecting 6.8. So very, very similar to last year's projection for me in terms of win total. But the schedule is so much more difficult this year that this is actually projecting to be a better team than last year, despite all that production that they lost. Uh, again, in my numbers, this, this is maybe the best team we've seen since 2020, which I, for Florida, which I know was uh, the COVID year. So people discount that. So if you go back one more year, they were a really good team in 2019 by my power ratings as well, a top 10 team that year. So this is this is going to be a good team. I think uh, I'll be curious as I finalize my returning production numbers. And as I finalize the preseason ratings um, as we get closer to August, if they fall, and if so, how much down the ordinal rank? Uh, I don't expect it'll be too far. Um, but yeah, this is a team projecting four and four in the SEC. Thirty um, percent chance to reach eight plus wins, which you know I, I think most Florida fans after last year would probably be thrilled with that. They'd probably like seven if I if if I'm being honest, uh, especially given what the over under win total is. I think maybe it's five point five. I saw. Um, I certainly think Florida's going to get more than that. But again, I'm 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 bullish on uh, or I'm I'm up on uh, on Florida. 
Mm. And, and Auburn next on your list, six point four projected wins. That they got to be one of the toughest to project, given the the new head coach, all the uh, transfer portal movement. Uh, love what they've done via the portal, but sometimes it's hard to just throw those pieces together and, and expect they they come about. But Hugh Freeze, say what you want about him, everywhere he's been, he's he's won. So regardless of how he's done it, uh, th- what's your model thoughts on on Auburn? Models thoughts on Auburn, um, a, a good team, you know, top 35 nationally. The, the offense is, you know, 40th right now, the defense right around 30. Um, so it, it's going to be a good team. It's a really difficult schedule. I've learned from Auburn fans, probably not as difficult um, this year as it typically is, which is saying a lot because this is still a top five most difficult schedule in the entire country. Um, ending with Alabama is always difficult. Of course, you've got to go to LSU. You, you've got Georgia, as you always do. Um, uh, the whole SEC West, of course, out of the East, we also get, in addition to Georgia, uh, Vanderbilt. So that's going to help you a little bit, you would think. Uh, New Mexico State, Samford, UMass, um, and, and California in the non-conference. Going to Cal is an interesting one. I uh, don't usually, I feel like, see too many SEC teams going to Cal. So uh, a game that maybe Auburn should win, you would think. A good team with a tough schedule, 46% chance to win seven-plus games. There is a lot of uncertainty around this team. They are bringing in a lot through the transfer portal, as you would expect with a new coach, a coach like Hugh Freeze. Um, we saw we saw Lincoln Riley be able to do it successfully at USC last year. I know people that are fans of Colorado want to expect that Colorado can do something similar this year. My numbers have reservations about that. Um, the truth's probably somewhere in between for Auburn, and uh, I, I think they'll be a good team. 2.8 projected conference wins, though. It's just really difficult when you're not an elite team in the SEC to put together a good conference record. It, it just is. And while this is a good team, I would not say they're an elite team this year. Um, and by their standards, uh, certainly down. But I do think this will be an improved team relative to last year, which, of course, I think Auburn fans would expect. Now, Missouri always feeling disrespected. Uh, they returned the second most production of any SEC team. The defense was outstanding considering where they had been uh, two seasons ago. Uh, they just really need to take that next step. And I, I know Mizzou fans are absolutely over 500 records. So I, your model's got them at 6.1 projected wins. What's What are the odds that they, they hit that seven, potentially eight win mark? 39% chance to win seven plus regular season games for Missouri by my numbers, a 16% chance to go eight plus. So not likely, but certainly possible. This is a team last year that overachieved my expectations by about half a game. Uh, I expected 5.5. They got to six. Uh, the defense, as you said, is definitely the better of the two units here. Projecting as top 20 this year. They were phenomenal last year, especially relative to where they've been, as you said. Uh, top top 60 unit on offense. Um th- it's a difficult schedule as everything in the SEC is maybe not the most difficult of all of them playing in the SEC East, of course, uh, catching out of the West. It looks like LSU and um, Arkansas to end the year. So if they can, like we talked about earlier, if, if, they, if they, like with Kentucky, if Missouri can make hay early in the year, you know, South Dakota, middle Tennessee, I've got it as a pick game at home to Kansas state. Expect that to be a really fun game, neutral site against Memphis at Vanderbilt. There is a chance that Missouri could be five and zero. Missouri fans are probably hoping at worst they're four and one coming into the home game in week six against LSU. That's going to be really difficult. Then you have to go to Kentucky. My numbers aren't going to favor you in that game, but it's certainly a gettable game. You get South Carolina coming to your place. My numbers like Missouri in that game. So it's, I mean, it's possible, not likely, but possible. You could be looking at a seven and one Missouri team coming off a bye going to Georgia. Um, 
Six and two, probably more likely. Five and three is probably the worst Missouri would want to be because you're closing the year really, really hard at Georgia, home to Tennessee, home to Florida, and at Arkansas. Probably want to be bowl eligible um, going into that your bye week in week nine uh, to feel good about it. But uh, they definitely have a chance. Most difficult game, of course, being LSU in that front half. So um, we'll see. Missouri is a team that I think they're trending in the right direction. I won't say that their arrows pointed straight up like I'd say about, you know, Tennessee or seemingly LSU. I would like to see one more year from LSU before I say that um, definitively. But uh, Missouri is definitely trending in the right direction. And I can already hear the complaints from Columbia, Kelly. Oh, they just skipped South Carolina, those jerks. No, Kelly, I don't know what Shane Beamer or Spencer Rattler has done to this man, but he has got South Carolina projected. This is Kelly's talk, his model, not me. 5.7 projected wins. What? What? What's going on here? If only I knew, Mike. Uh, so I get on radio during the season every week, every week, and then during the the summer months here, pretty frequently with Mark Ryan down there in in the Upstate in South Carolina, and yeah. His listeners, his fans, uh, they don't really like what I have to say about South Carolina too much. And I had to own it last year. I had projected last year um, just 6.1 wins for South Carolina. Of course, they get to eight in the regular season, closing with two very strong wins against Tennessee and Clemson. Games that I did not, my numbers did not think South Carolina would win. And they proved me wrong and credit to them. Shane Beamer seems to have captured some magic. Um, I talked about it with Mark. There are, and we talked about it on this show too, this episode today, Mike, there are things the model can't account for. And that's, you know, scheduling nuances, coaching changes, things like that. But there's just, there's also intangible momentum, vibe, just feelings around a program. I don't really know how to even describe it, but there are intangibles that the model can't see. And it would appear from an outsider's perspective, like mine, looking in on South Carolina, that they've got all those intangibles working in the right direction. And when you get that much synergy together, pulling in the same direction towards a positive movement, you are going to overachieve the the, the raw data expectations. And that's what we saw, especially the end of last year. And perhaps that's what we'll see again this year. As it stands, I think this is a a really good offense, top 25 nationally. The defense I have some concerns about, you know, projecting mid-60s, which is average power five or average FBS below average power five. Um, And when you've got a defense in the mid-60s in the SEC, there's going to be some offenses, I think, that take advantage of that. So, can the South Carolina offense put up enough numbers to to, to just win some shootouts? Maybe is, is how this will go. I'm not entirely uh, sure. This is this is a difficult team to project. Top five most difficult schedule, no matter how you slice it. Um, North Carolina to start the year is going to be difficult. You end it with Clemson, also going to be very difficult. Um, in between, of, of of course, you've got Georgia, you've got Tennessee, you've got Florida, all really difficult games. Um, 28% chance to win seven plus 55% chance to be bowl eligible. So um, I think Shane Beamer's doing a great job. I think he's really building something there. It's things that I can't necessarily um, measure or, or capture in the model, but South Carolina fans, they're not happy with me. They seemingly never are. Uh, just keep winning games and my model will catch up eventually. That'd be my advice. And then last we got Vanderbilt 3.8. I, I would imagine, you know, they overachieved last year. Certainly they stole a couple SEC games. If they can do that again, what's your model say the likelihood that they do? They, they've already said the goal is to reach a bowl game. Uh, I have to imagine that their non-conference, at least three of them they'll be favored in, if not four. So, I, I mean, I think that is somewhat of a realistic goal. What's your model say? Yeah, getting to six wins, my model says is going to be tough. An 8% chance that Vanderbilt can get there. As you mentioned, the non-conference is where you got to do it, and it's the first four weeks of the season. Um, Hawaii in week zero, Alabama A&M. 
at Wake Forest could be a tricky one. Of course, Wake Forest has lost Sam Hartman, but my number's still projecting Vanderbilt to be an underdog in that game. And then going on the road to UNLV, my number's like Vanderbilt in that one by about a touchdown at this point. So you've got to get all four of those if you want to go bowling, in my opinion, because after that, it's tough. I'm not sure where the wins come from. I know they stole a couple last year, as you said, but I mean, you're looking at a double-digit favorite in nearly every game, 9.5 at home to Missouri as an underdog is is your closest spread in the SEC. Uh, Kentucky's less than two touchdowns. Auburn, less than two touchdowns. South Carolina is two touchdowns. Trying to get two games from there, it's going to be really difficult, but they did overachieve last year, and and the Commodores, um, they'll be looking to do it again this year for sure. All right, Kelly, I know we're running short on time. I just wanted to ask you real quick here. It looks like by your models, Oklahoma and Texas, 9.6 wins, 9.5. It surprised me that Oklahoma was slightly higher than Texas. I assume that's a function of playing Alabama. And also, just just quick, I mean, I I know you've probably not thought of this, but I have to assume you throw them into the SEC, the number's not 9.6 and 9.5, is it? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. The numbers come down. As I talked about earlier, if you picked, I think I was Old Miss we were talking about, if you pick up Old Miss and drop them in the ACC or the Pac-12, you pick up any SEC school a team and drop them into a different conference and play one of those schedules, their numbers are going to go up. You pick up any team in the country, drop them in the SEC, Ohio State, Texas, Ohio, Oklahoma, all of them, drop them in, in the SEC played SEC schedule, those win totals go down for sure. So um, without a doubt, absolutely. And you, you nailed it, Mike. The reason that Texas's regular season win total projection is less than Oklahoma's is not because my numbers think Texas is a worse team than Oklahoma. They don't. They currently favor the Longhorns by four in the, at the neutral site in Dallas at the, the Texas State Fair um, in the Red River shootout over the Sooners, but it's the schedule. And in particular, it is Alabama on the schedule. I mean, it is almost explicitly a function of Texas playing Alabama on the road in the non-conference, while Oklahoma, who, as we know, lost the game against Georgia in the non-conference that they had scheduled um, due to future um, uh, conference affiliations. Um, but they, they replaced them with uh, who would it have been? I, I can't remember who they replaced them with, but their current non-conference slate for Oklahoma, Arkansas State, SMU, Tulsa, and um, oh, that's it. They have three. They have three. Yep, those three uh, in the Big Twelve. So it's absolutely a function of the schedule, and uh, those win totals would be lesser if they were in the SEC for sure. Two great programs. The SEC is picking up next year. Um, makes my heart a little sad because I, I I yearn for the good old days of college football, if you will. But um, it's great for the SEC, and it's uh, I'm sure great for for your show too, Mike. Uh, getting those fan bases involved with 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 the best conference in college, college football. Yeah. Well, I, I can't thank you enough, Kelly. I've taken up enough of your time. Before you go, can you tell the audience one more time where to find all your work, how they can follow you? Uh, it's really, really outstanding stuff. I cannot recommend it enough. Absolutely. First, thank you, Mike, for having me on. I always appreciate it. It's always a blast talking with you. This is a great podcast. Um, I'm just in awe of what you've built with that SEC podcast. Uh, but you can find me on Twitter at KFordRatings. I have the website, KFordRatings.com. And then my buddy Zach and I do a college football podcast, um, mainly during the season, but we do have some season content as well that's at we hate your team underscore on twitter and you can find it the we hate your team podcast uh wherever you listen to your podcast so thank you again mike really appreciate it this has been so much fun all right so just we'll say thanks again kelly for joining the show really appreciate him i mean he's got one of the the best uh twitter accounts that i have found I, i think i discovered it this time last year and like i said i had him on the show it was a great show got a ton of feedback on that one and uh, I really cannot recommend his account and his website more. It's all free. Go check out all the hard work Kelly's doing at kfordrankings.com. 
But hey, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. Cousin Shane will be back on the next episode. And we got several more guests lined up. They're going to be joining us throughout the week. And I got a really fun idea. Uh, so, th- hey, we ain't going nowhere, man. We're right around the corner from 100 days to SEC football. Big Orange Walks, SEC Media Days. Cannot wait. And we even got fall previews. We're already starting to fall camp previews that we did last year. We're already putting the wheels in motion to get that going yet again. So we're going to be breaking down every single SEC team, full in-depth, hour-long on each team. So that's going to be coming probably kick that off in in about mid-June but uh, cannot wait for that and a lot more coming on that SEC podcast. We really do appreciate each and every one of you for hanging out. We'll catch you on the next one. Hey buddy this beer's for you Mike and Cousin Shane that SEC podcast loves the Pirate and the Pirate loves that SEC podcast Hail State